The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're making our way through the book of Deuteronomy. I have to say this, I don't often reference the fact that these sermons are archived and that people watch them uh, sometime later, but I do have to reference the fact that if you are ever watching this and you think that we did the Eighth Commandment before the Seventh Commandment, you're exactly right. It was my mistake. There's just no excuse. I skipped it, not on purpose, but by, uh, by negligence and just looking at the wrong verse. Uh, but we had a good time talking about stealing last week, didn't we? Okay, thank you very much. That was underwhelming, all of you. What's that? I stole a commandment. from. Thank you, Bob. That's very encouraging. We should just close in prayer right now. So Deuteronomy chapter 5 contains the reiteration of the Ten Commandments. They were first given in Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy is that sermon that Moses is preaching to the children of Israel who are standing on the plains of Moab about to go into the promised land, their parents not being able to go because they sinned. Moses then is summarizing, he's reinvigorating their commitment to the law in general and here to the ten words in particular. For tonight, we're going to look at the seventh commandment, which is contained in verse 18 and simply says this, you shall not commit adultery. Five words in English, only two in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says, never adultery, never adulterize. I thought it was very interesting in coming up to this sermon. On Friday, I was looking at the news, and on CNN's website, there was an interesting article, and this was its title, Monogamy is Unnatural. It was by a girl named Megan Laslaki, and she writes this. I was going to try to pick different parts of this article, but after reading it again, I just want to read it all to you. Just take a couple minutes, okay? She says this. I don't even know who these people are. Kristen Stewart, Ryan Felipe, Leanne Rimes, Jude Law, Mark Sanford, Bill Clinton. What do they all have in common? Many are quick to label a person who strays from his or her marriage or relationship as a cheater, but it's really not that simple. It's time for our culture to wake up and smell the sex pheromones, that monogamy is not natural for many or probably even most humans. With people living longer than ever before, a greater tolerance toward toward the human impulse to experience sexual activity and variety is needed. Whether a person succeeds at being sexually monogamous depends as much on biology as environment. History and biology suggest that strict monogamy, which has social advantages, is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. Marrying for love is a relatively new concept, she writes. Beginning with the Enlightenment, the cultural movement of the 18th and 19th centuries, when the pursuit of happiness became a legitimate human pursuit, I just, it's hard for me not to stop and correct all these things, but there was love way before the 18th century. Um, Just read... Genesis. When the pursuit of happiness became a legitimate human pursuit, that happened in the 18th century. It's remarkable. Anyway, marrying for love uh, slowly but surely became an aspiration in the Western world. 
But for most of human history, marriage was primarily a socioeconomic transaction. Spending the rest of your life with someone was more about the protection of property and the sharing of labor than it was about romance. This side effect, the side effect of the rise of marriage as romantic, a romantic proposition, was that sexual jealousy became a more prevalent ingredient in marriage than it had been previously. Over time, sexual fidelity or faithfulness has come to be regarded as the barometer of a successful marriage, regardless of what science tells us about our natural human inclinations. Biologically, we humans are animals. See where she's going? So it makes sense to look at the animal kingdom for clues as to what we were built for. Did you hear the hermeneutics there? The hermeneutics of understanding people? Let me read that again. It makes sense to look to the animal kingdom for clues to what we were built for. Let's start with the birds. For some time, bird species such as lovebirds and penguins were celebrated among humans for their seemingly monogamous ways. About 90% of birds were thought to be strictly monogamous. And for those who might not know, since my son asked me today, monogamous means one man, one woman for life or until that person dies. But DNA fingerprinting knocked the birds off of the monogamy perch. Analysis of avian DNA indicates that many nestling fathers are not their biological fathers. This led experts to distinguish between unions that are sexually exclusive and those that are socially monogamous, meaning a pair that raises a family together but indulges in what are called extra pair copulations. The evidence shows that monogamy is a rarity among mammals. Only 3 to 5% of all the mammal, mammal species on earth practice any form of monogamy. In fact, no mammal species has been proven to be truly monogamous. I'm just continuing, continuing to quote her. One species of uh, the prairie vole was subjected to scrutiny by biologists because it appeared to be truly monogamous. But it turns out that as a species, it just has as just a higher rate of sexual monogamy as every, every other. Not every prairie vole is, resists straying. Studies of prairie voles uh, helped scientists understand that from a chemical and biological standpoint, sexual monogamy depends not just on particular hormones that are released in the brain, but on receptors for those hormones. Among humans, there's, here's the rub. We have the chemicals and the receptors, but it varies from person to person on how much we have. Based on brain wiring alone, inclination toward faithfulness can very dramatically uh, vary from one individual to another. In other words, once a cheater, always a cheater, might have as much to do with a brain wiring as it does with a person's moral compass, upbringing, or culture. Bottom line is that flings are far from folly, at least in the animal kingdom. Even the swan symbols of fidelity are not immune. It's also important to look at the human longevity with respect to cultural expectations of monogamy. As recent as over 100 uh, years ago, it uh, was far more likely that an individual would lose his or her spouse at a very young age. Remarriage by widows and widowers, also known as serial monogamy, sounds like a disease, was one way for humans to fulfill uh, the need for sexual variety. That's just so fundamentally wrong. Sexual variety, that's why you got remarried? Anyway... Uh, I'm not going to critique it right now. Today, the median age for the first marriages is at 28 for men, 26 for women. Disease is far likely, less likely to kill someone in the prime of their life, and expectancies go into the 70s. Because fidelity is considered the barometer of a successful marriage, 
This means that a person is theoretically expected to have one sexual partner for about 50 years. This seems like a lot to expect from any human being, even the most honorable, ethical, and moral. Those who are able to stay with one partner for a long haul are sometimes looked at, looked upon with awe. Certainly a lasting and happy marriage tends to be far better for the children. Well, thanks for saying that. It's long been assumed that men struggle more with monogamy than women. Some experts have started to question this theory. With the development of a drug that promotes uh, to boost female libido, one can argue the sexual boredom and the temptation to stray is as big of an issue for women as it is for men, if not more so. Human monogamy is influenced by many factors. Instead of pointing fingers or acting morally superior to those who stray from marriages, we should recognize that strict sexual faithfulness is a lofty but perhaps fundamentally doomed aspiration. She goes on to conclude and by, at the end just says, for the record, I am monogamous. What you've heard in this article is so amazingly representative of the way our culture has moved in thinking toward morality and toward sexual freedom and fidelity. Against all that, God says, do not commit adultery. It's fair to say that the seventh commandment is perhaps the most flagrantly disrespected of all the ten words of Moses in our day. There are few in our society who take the seventh commandment seriously at all, as represented by that article. Why? Some see adultery as a legitimate escape from an unhappy marriage. Others see it as a harmless uh, uh, um, escapade and as harmless as changing brands of shampoo. Polls show that in the United States, two out of every five men and one out of every five women have cheated on their spouse. Let me give you the definition of adultery from a Jewish uh, Hebraist, Hebrew expert named Nahum Sarma, Sarma, Sarna. He says this, looking at the definition of adultery biblically. The definition of adultery is sexual intercourse by mutual consent between a married woman and a man who is not her lawful husband. Such was the case throughout the ancient Near East. Adultery was a private wrong committed, private wrong committed against the husband, an infringement of his exclusive right of possession in his relationship. Hence, the punishment of, or pardon of the violation was left to his discretion. True adultery is termed the great sin in both Egypt and Ugaritic. But the gods, the ancient Near Eastern gods, were involved in its uh, um, legal consequences, even though they were guilty themselves. In Israel, by contrast, the marriage bond has a sacred dimension. The prohibition of adultery is divinely ordained. Since adultery is treated as both a public wrong and an offense to God... The husband has no legal power to pardon the faithless wife or lover. The gravity of adultery in Israelite law may be gauged by both its place in the Decalogue between murder and theft and by the extreme severity of the penalty, which was death. Isn't it interesting when you study Greek and Roman mythology, when you study Egyptian mythology, that the gods were the biggest perpetrators of Adultery. They were 
incapable in the fanciful imaginations of their creators to be faithful. And the reason is they created their gods in their, what, own image. Why is adultery singled out in the Decalogue above all other sexual sins? Well, because more than any other illicit sexual behavior, adultery has to do with unfaithfulness in a relationship of commitment. Remember what we said at the very beginning? All of these commandments have to do with protecting the rights of others. The first four commandments are given to us to protect and promote God's rights. The last six are given to us to protect and promote the rights of the people around us. To say, do not commit adultery is to make a commitment, listen, not just to your marriage, is to make a commitment to the marriage of someone you would be unfaithful with or even their future marriage. So let's exegete and exposit the seventh commandment. Are you ready? You can hold your breath while we do it. You shall not commit adultery. This is the exegesis of it. You know what it means? You should never commit adultery. That's what it means. There's not a lot of uh, variance on it. There's not, you can't go much deeper. You can't go much shallower. So I want to respond to that with you tonight. And let's look then at two safeguards for honoring the sanctity of marriage. Two safeguards for honoring the sanctity, the holiness of marriage. This is how we protect others' rights to a pure marriage. And if everyone was doing that with each other, our rights to our own purity in our marriage would be protected as well. So we'll look at two safeguards for honoring the sanctity of marriage. The first is this. We're to give exclusive, faithful love to your spouse. Give exclusive and faithful love to your spouse. Now, I have some subpoints under that that will help explain that. How do you do that? First, you do that by applying biblical instruction to your marriage. So give exclusive, faithful love to your spouse. How? First, by applying biblical instruction to your marriage. It's important that we go uh, uh, to Ephesians 5. We can't fully exposit that text tonight, but we've looked at it in the past. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Wives, respond to your husbands as the church does to Christ. The gospel is at stake in how marriages are lived out by those who say they belong to Christ. Can I just say this as, as bluntly and as honestly and as pleadingly as possible? If you say you belong to Christ and you're married, your marriage is either a loudspeaker or a distraction to the gospel to those who hear you. It's very simple. Marriage is the only illustration in the the, uh, New Testament that has a reciprocating function. You know what I mean by that? If you read Ephesians 5, 11 to 22, you'll find out that marriage is said to illustrate the gospel. And the gospel is is to illustrate marriage. They actually work back and forth with one another so that people should look at our marriages and say, that's fundamentally different than society. And we can answer, that's because a husband is loving his wife as Christ has loved the church, giving himself up for her daily, sacrificing himself for her, giving to her every need, making her wishes his desire. And a wife is to submit to and follow her husband as a Christian does Christ. 
We're to have one flesh relationships with each other in the creative order. We have to apply biblical instruction to our marriage. And we don't have just the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. First uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, give very clear instruction about those relationships. It's hard to do Christian marriage. Can I just say that? Kim and I could have a Q&A and we would tell you that it is hard. It is not easy. Not only is our flesh fighting against that, the forces of all hell are fighting against us. You're swimming upstream like a salmon against, against the, the current. Everything works against faithfulness. Everything works against pursuing marriage in a way that pleases the spouse and honors God. It would be so easy for me to preach for the next 30 minutes about how we're all woefully deficient in our marriages. And I would do that, except I have to go home and see my wife. And she would say, yeah, us too, you too. Bottom line is, we're not what we need to be, but the question is, are we becoming what we ought to be? Give exclusive, faithful love to your spouse by applying biblical instruction, looking at the gospel. Secondly, though, underneath number one, by enjoying intimate satisfaction in your marriage. By enjoying intimate satisfaction in your marriage. Yes, I'm talking about intimacy. This is talking about sex inside marriage. If you're a junior higher or you're a high schooler, there is no place you ought to be where you can learn the proper parameters about sexual conduct than here in the church. God's word is replete. It is complete. It is absolutely full of instruction about sexual fidelity, about sexual faithfulness. And we've looked at this passage in the past, but, in the past, but I think it's important to look at again. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. You'll, you'll know that Proverbs 1 to 9 is the, um, uh, the parental section where, Paul, uh, where, Paul, where, where Solomon is talking to his son Rehoboam. And he's instructing him on how to be a great prince, how to be a great king someday. And as he's doing that in those first nine chapters, he specifically outlines the need for sexual purity and talks about it in five distinct discourses. Get this. He talks about sexual purity and avoiding adultery more than anything else in those first nine chapters. That's significant. That lets us know that there is nothing new under the sun. We didn't wake up one day in the 21st century and decide, oh, wow, there's sexual temptation. It goes all the way back to the garden. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. The Bible doesn't blush when it talks about sex, especially in its God-given context, marriage. It is very interesting here, though, uh, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, but we're going to look at it again briefly tonight, that Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern. He's not talking about water. He's talking about your wife. He's not talking about... He, uh, the cistern is obviously the wife. The water is uh, sexual pleasure. And what he's saying is, drink water from your own cistern singularly. Isn't that interesting? Coming from a man who had 900, 1,000 women in his life, Yet he tells his son, have one. Drink water from your own cistern, from your own well, fresh water from your own well. I think the inclusion of Proverbs chapter 5 is why Proverbs 5 might be the most 
important instruction about sexual fidelity within marriage of anything else because it tells you not only what to run from, but what to run towards. The best defense against adultery is a healthy marriage. The best defense against the advances of an adulterous woman or an adulterous man is a healthy marriage. He talks about this cistern. Cistern was an underground chamber for storing water. Cisterns were precious commodities in the ancient Near East, especially if you had your own cistern, you were considered wealthy. Very rare, a private cistern was. The picture was that in a dry and arid climate, you could assuage your thirst by going to the cool, fresh, delicious water of your own cistern. Anytime you were thirsty, you could be refreshed personally by what you had. He's not talking about getting a drink of water here, folks. He's saying be sexually content at home in the marriage bed. Song of Solomon, verse four, chapter 4, verse 15 says, You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and springs flowing from Lebanon. You refresh me. I, I do remember a few months ago talking about an illustration that I just have to tell you again. And that was when I was teaching uh, at Grace Church as a college pastor on sexual purity and had a freshman from the master's college come up and stand in line and talk to me. He was in the back of the line. People were getting close. Someone would get behind him. He'd get out of the line and go to the back. He wanted to be the last guy to talk to me. So at the very end, he comes up to me and he says, Rick. He looks around. He makes sure nobody's there. He says, what's it like to have sex every day? And I looked around, and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> Those of you who are single, it's, we'll talk sometime. But the point is, if you're going to pursue sexual pleasure, it's with your spouse. Sex is God's wedding gift. It's a good thing. Sometimes in premarital, I can tell a couple... On your honeymoon night, and thereafter, every time you're intimate with one another, it's as if the Lord Jesus Christ is standing in the room applauding. Now, if that makes you awkward, that tells you how wrong our view of sex is. It's a gift by God. He made it up. And it's intended to be shared between a man and a woman who are married alone. He goes on, verse 16, should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone, not for strangers with you. He's talking about uh, having children outside of wedlock. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed, rejoice with the wife of your youth, your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Is he talking, though, just about the physical nature of sexual pleasure? No, he's not. What do you do with my friend, Gary, whose wife had breast cancer and a double mastectomy? Can, she, can he not apply this? No, no. The key is the last phrase. Be exhilarated always with her body, her sexual pleasures. What does it say? With her with her Love. With love. Again, we 
we're to have that attraction within marriage. I love Solomon's chapter 7 of Song of Solomon, chapter 7, you know it well. Your navel is like a round goblet. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. Guys, you want to try this? Have at it, okay? Your neck is like the tower of ivory. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon. Don't they sound pretty? Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. I guess she had a long nose and he liked it. Your head crowns you like Carmel. The flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The point is simply this. He was completely and totally satisfied in his marriage with this woman. As we know, later in life, that would change. He would look elsewhere, and it would bring him ruin. The best deterrent for adultery, the best deterrent for sexual sin is a healthy marriage. Let me get another one. By preserving solitary intimacy for your marriage. By preserving solitary intimacy for your marriage. I want to address those of you who are students, singles. Save yourself for him. Save yourself for her. Don't sin against your body. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Sexual sin is different than every other sin because in sexual sin you sin against your body and the church of Christ as well. Christ's body. Don't give your vigor to the others and your years to the cruel one as Proverbs 5 says. One thing that's interesting in Proverbs 5, Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7 both allude to adultery. They allude to sexual sin outside of marriage. But in look at verse 9, if you're still there in Proverbs 5. It says, be wise, lest you give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one, lest strangers be filled with your strength, your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien. You'll groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, oh, how I hated instruction. My heart spurned reproof. I knew better, and I didn't do better. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers. In this context, the teachers were parents nor incline my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and in the congregation. Section has a catalog of the ruin that comes after sexual sin. Verse 9, you lose dignity and respect. Verse 10, you waste your resources trying to cover it up or pay for it. Verses 12 and 13, you're filled with remorse. And verse 14 comes public disgrace. Can I give you a footnote of good news though? All that we're talking about here is forgivable by the gospel, by a God who cares and loves and knows and sees and extends forgiveness. Charles Swindoll has listed a, an incomplete list, but a list that I think is worth our attention. We looked at this a few months ago, but I think we'll look at it again tonight. Of what you have in store for you if your immorality is found out, I can't improve on his words. Let me just read it. He says this. Heartache and loneliness will follow. No amount of repentance will soften those blows. Your mate can never again say that you are a model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob him or her of trust. Your escapades of what you introduce into your life and your mate's life have the very real possibility of a sexually transmitted disease. 
The total devastation in your sinful actions will bring that the total devastation that your sinful actions bring your children is immeasurable. Their growth, trust, healthy outlook on life will be severely and permanently damaged. The heartache will you cause your parents, your families, and your peers is indescribable. The embarrassment of facing other Christians who want to who want who used to appreciate you, respect you, and trust you will be overwhelming. If you are engaged in the Lord's work, you will suffer the immediate loss of your job and the support of those with whom you worked. The dark shadow will accompany you everywhere and forever. Forgiveness will not erase it. Your fall will give others license to do the same. The inner peace you enjoy will be gone. You will never again be able to erase that fall from yours or others' minds. It will remain indelibly etched on your life's record regardless of the later return to your senses. And above all that, the name of Jesus Christ, whom you once honored, will be tarnished, giving the enemies of faith further reason to fear, to sneer, and to jeer. I have thought many times about what Proverbs 5 tells us to do. Think about what it would be like if you fell. I love my wife. I can tell you I've been faithful to my wife every day of our marriage. I tell her often that I care for her and love her. She has every password to every account. To every, she's got more access to me than I have to me. I, I want to be as accountable as I can. But even with that, I think it's healthy to do what Proverbs 5 is saying. What would it be like if you had to sit down with your father or mother, your children, your brothers, your neighbors, people at church, your pastor, and ultimately your wife or your husband and say, I have not been faithful. Feel the sting of that and then make a covenant to never have to have that conversation. Secondly, give appropriate preferential love to your neighbor. This is interesting because that's the point of the Ten Commandments. Give appropriate preferential love to your neighbor. Romans 13a is very interesting. Romans 13a says this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. Isn't that interesting? You love your neighbor, and the first application is you don't commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this, saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You care for another man when his wife is safe with you. You care for another woman when her husband is safe with you. That's how we love one another in the body of Christ. You say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. Jesus doesn't let us off with that. Jesus says, okay, you've never committed adultery, good job. But I have another question for you. Matthew 5, 27, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He quotes the seventh commandment. 
He says, but I say to you, now that had to have every Pharisee listening just stunned. You, you've heard you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and you almost expect him to say, ah, it's okay. If it makes you happy, Kim and I were talking uh, uh, to our sons about a, a Christian uh, recording artist, who uh, uh, a very famous one who, who uh, several years ago got a divorce and remarried, and her answer to that was to say, well, God wants me happy. I'm not happy with my husband. I'll be happy with this other man, so therefore it's God's will. We were talking, I think, Mark, we were talking uh, about that. Does God want you happy at the expense of his commands? He doesn't say, I'll give you a break. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her, to even think about a sexual act, has committed adultery with her already, where? In his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you, for it's better for you that one of your body parts perish than for your whole body, listen to this, to be thrown into hell. Did you know that your sexual decisions indicate your heart for the Lord? Now, if you failed in that, that doesn't mean that your heart is totally abandoned by the Lord or you've abandoned the Lord. It's the response to that sin. Same thing with your hand. If it makes you sin, cut it off, throw it far from you. It's that, this, the, the extremeness of that is radical. Wouldn't it be enough to pluck your eye out or cut your hand off? I mean, wouldn't that do the job? He says, no. Pick it up and throw it far from you. Give appropriate preferential love to your neighbor and his spouse. How? By keeping marriage sacred in your mind. Keeping marriage holy and precious and sacred in your mind. Keeping your mind clean in our day and age is like trying to stay clean in a pigsty. Just because you live in a pigsty doesn't mean that you have to go wallowing in the mud. TV, movies, media, um, they're, in general, those cesspools of suggestive material. And the wise believer will minimize exposure to sinful influences. Is that, is that clear? Is that fair? I've been criticized in the past for, for being hard on entertainment. Uh, throw rocks. It's okay, I'll take it. But most of those are sinful influences. They don't promote and help holiness. Old Puritan said, don't sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the temporal. It's impossible to set hard and fast guidelines for what you see and what you hear. Everyone is different. Most men would uh, find pornography arousing and a, some women would find a walk in the park with a man who gave her attention equally as generating of lustful desires. But whatever the temptation, we must control our mind and fantasies at every level of thinking rightly about the one flesh relationship of sacred marriage. I love Martin Luther. He's so picturesque. He said this, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. 
He's exactly right. Don't be a predator. Don't be a predator on another man or woman's marriage. Give them preference and honor and sanctity in the way you think about their spouse. Simply put, don't be drawn into a relationship with someone who is not your spouse. Christian men, can I tell you this? You should have a very good reputation as, you know, he's a little bit aloof with women. That's a good reputation. Same with women to men who are not your husbands. That doesn't mean you're unkind. It just means you're wise. So how does this work? Can I get really really practical with you. How does this work? Several years ago, I got about three lists uh, that were all really similar and overlapped. It was called the anatomy of adultery. How does, how does someone end up doing this? Well, I combined the list, made some modifications, and, and came up with this one. It's not original with me, but here's what happens. Here's the anatomy of adultery. Very wise words. First, you meet someone in an emotionally ready way meaning that you're not entirely pursuing things at home as you should be with your spouse. Second, you grow more and more aware of that particular person. Third, you spend time thinking about that person. Then there's a series of unplanned, innocent contacts. This can be personal, electronic, email, Facebook, texts, In your mind, you begin finding yourself comparing that person to your present present husband or wife. And then you find that the person you're comparing to your spouse actually begins to excel in categories of comparison. Then you start thinking about how unhappy you are at home. This isn't what I signed up for. This is not what I expected. Then the unplanned, innocent context, contacts develop into planned, intentional meetings. You start finding ways to seek the other person out to talk and have conversations. Again, this can be online, by text, email. You realize that you feel good when you're with that person and better than with your husband or wife. Then you start comparing You compare the way you feel about this person with the way you feel about your spouse. You compare how the other person treats you compared to how your spouse treats you. Then you start looking for ways you can be with the other person for legitimate reasons. There's an exchange of apparently innocent forms of physical affection. Oh, they're innocent at first. But that innocent form quickly turns to less innocent and prolonged Embracing, kissing. Then you start experiencing a struggle in your conscience. The desire to be in contact with each other continues and intensifies. You engage finally at the end in some kind of sexual contact or involvement. Then you begin planning frequent covert meetings. Now you have inherited and described, now you've just, uh, created for yourself a double life. 
Others start becoming suspicious and confront you, and you lie. You're defensive, and you deny everything. But at some point, the truth rises to the surface, and mark this down, it always will. You cannot outrun God. Then it's decision time. You have three choices. Continue having the affair or other affairs and remain married. Second, you make plans to separate or get a divorce. Or third, you repent and find the grace of God and seek counsel and help. And the gospel covers sin. The best news of the night is that the gospel covers any indiscretion. Before there is physical adultery, listen, there is always, always, always emotional adultery. And sometimes, some, and this is from dozens, dozens, dozens of counseling situations, sometimes you don't even know how emotionally attached you become, the perpetrator is, does, until confronted. I don't... I don't care about him. I don't, I don't care about her. Oh, you're overreacting. We're just friends. We're just colleagues. We're just this. We're just that. Can I suggest that you not only give your spouse access to everything, don't you dare have a, a private email account or a private bank account or a private phone or a private this. Or, give your spouse access to everything. Why wouldn't you? And listen, I'm going to beg you. I want to beg you, trust your spouse's instincts. I have to admit, I'm, I'm clueless a lot of the time. I have had, on several occasions, my wife say, I don't like the way that girl, that gal, I don't like the way she talks to you or the way she looks at you. I'm uncomfortable with that. Anytime a spouse says they're uncomfortable in that situation, your automatic response as a godly believer is, how far can I get away from this situation? That makes you uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. But what if I offend that person? Who cares? Who cares? I would rather have a hurt feeling on some person's part than a broken marriage. Trust your spouse's instincts. Are you ready for this? Even if they're wrong, trust your spouse's instincts. Have regular discussions about the gospel and marriage. Talk about, you want to have a really sobering date night this week? Just go out and say, hey, how are we doing? And both will say, oh, you're, we're doing fine. Okay, great. I know we're doing fine in some areas. But let's talk about the areas we're not doing fine. Can we talk about those areas? And I promise you, there are those areas, or you have been glorified, and we're on, on, in heaven. I just didn't know that yet. Be ready always to repent. We have a God who gives grace, who gives forgiveness, who gives... <laughs> it would be blasphemous to say that God is a God of second chances, wouldn't it? Because he gives second and third. 
and fourth and fifth and one hundredth and two hundredth chances. We're not in hell, are we? You know, such a gracious God. Marriage is hard. Christian marriage is impossible unless the Spirit of God is working in two believers who want the Spirit of God working in their lives and want Jesus Christ honored and glorified. Now, here's what I know, and I haven't looked at anybody's email or I'm not revealing any kind of counseling situation, but here's what I know. These kinds of discussions are hard to have after a sermon like this, after a text like this. And it's going to be easy for some of you, some of us, to get in the car, and one of you will say, well, we need to talk about that, and the other one will say, no, we don't. Well, that's an indication that you really, what, need to talk about that. But wouldn't, don't we want Kansas City to know that at 7820 Mission Road, there are some people so sold out to Jesus Christ, so honoring of his lordship in their life, that marriage works for the glory of God and brings them, us, immeasurable pleasure. And that other marriages and other spouses are safe when they interact with the spouses that are in our congregation. That's the signature of the gospel in marriage. You shall not commit adultery. In mind or in body, and I read you that list, don't get far down that list. Be wonderfully aloof with everybody but your wife or your husband. And if it's that, that's the case with us, we'll all understand. Isn't that right? It'll be okay. I ask you to bow your heads for a moment because I want to ask you to do one thing before we leave. It's, I, I'm, I'm very aware when we talk about marriage, we all feel inadequate. We all feel insufficient. We all feel, not we all, I, I so easily feel like a failure. I could give you so many ways that I fail my sweet wife, Kim. Let's just remember the gospel grants grace and forgiveness, and the gospel grants power for repentance. There is no such thing as a marriage that's too broken to be fixed by the gospel. No such thing. But it has to begin with us looking at ourselves. Adultery is typically because we're looking at our spouses. And the countless numbers of adulterous um, Situations I've encountered in counseling, I can tell you, it all comes from looking outside, not looking within. We all need the power of God and the grace of God to be faithful. And I promise you this, you will enjoy your marriage if Christ is at the center if he's calling the shots. Otherwise, you will have a life of torment and frustration and confliction and unhappiness. Drink water from your own cistern. Fresh water from your own well. Be exhilarated always with her Love. Father, grant 
grace and forgiveness in areas of mind and in areas of action, grant power for all of us who long to have marriages that serve you and that represent the gospel. What a God, what a God we have who gives us instruction, who outlines this. Lord, we confess that this gal I read at the beginning, she is wrong. It's a lie that some people are predisposed to adultery. But it's also a lie that we can become and be faithful in a way that represents the gospel without you, without your spirit controlling and guiding us. Oh, Lord, give our church healthy marriages. We know that that's the centrifuge for all ministry here. Cause the conversations that we all have with our wives and husbands to go well. These may be wonderful. They could be uncomfortable, but make them profitable. Make us faithful. For your glory and Lord, for our good as you've intended. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. (laughs) 